This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to the second last radiotherapy for 2018. And do we have a huge show lined up for you this morning. You can hear the cheers in the background. Woohoo! Woo. First up, we'll be having a chat with uh, Dr Mick Creedy and Harry Brown from the Royal Children's Hospital. Now, Harry manages and Mick rides for the CHIPS program. What is the CHIPS program, you ask? It is the Chronic C Illness I Peer P S Support Program, CHIPS program for adolescents. And the program has now been running strong for 25 years. Or should I say riding strong? Because Mick Creedy has just battled his bushy from Geraldton and WA to Uluru and Alice Springs. And now it's all the way south down to Triple I in uh, Brunswick. And he's doing that to raise money for the program. And we'll be speaking with him and some people from CHIPS. It is going to be a great segment. Professor Felicity Baker is the Head of Music Therapy and the Director of Creative Arts and Music Therapy Research at Melbourne Uni. She is an international expert in therapeutic songwriting. I can hardly wait to speak to Felicity. And she is regularly invited to deliver workshops the world over. She has amassed... Eight million dollars. What? what? How Eight much? million Woo-hoo. dollars in research funding. Wow. Primarily for studies of people with acquired brain injury or people living with dementia. She's published uh, numerous books in the field of uh, music therapy and over 150 peer-reviewed journals. That's more than I've read. Um, <laughs> we're very excited to have Felicity in the studio to chat about the enormous impact that music makes in health care. And Don't interrupt the intro. No, no, please. I've got to add this because I've just learnt it in the green room. She chips with... Um, no way. Yeah. yeah. She's a chip it. There's synchronicity all over here. Joining me, Dr. Mao, will be that person you just heard, Nurse um, <laughs> EpiPen, regular. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Radio, we wish you a Radiotherapy regular and you're a spleen specialist as well as... Dr. G-Spot, who's a psychologist, researcher and a bon vivant. What a great name. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah. Stick with us for an hour of medical news, views and interviews right here on Triple R's Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. And I've also got to say a big thank you to uh, Kentus Maximus, who uh, every show that I'm on just coordinates me and gets me, just gets the panel right. If it weren't for him, there'd be major errors everywhere. So just to put voice to name, Nurse EpiPen, welcome. Good morning. <laughs> so that, that voice you're hearing now is uh, Nurse EpiPen. After 25 years of being in radio, we finally got taught, put voice <laughs> to name. <laughs> That's me. Good That's morning, you. listeners. Good morning, everyone Good. around the world. <laughs> remember, that, remember that voice. And uh, Dr. G-Spot. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming in and being part of our show. Oh, what a pleasure. I know there's, you know, a big audience listening and I can't wait to uh, share my knowledge and chat about topical issues She's, with everyone. She says that sarcastically, doesn't she? Because <laughs> I sit out in the green room just to keep everybody nice and loose and not to get too anxious that we have a small but very, very loyal listenership here at uh, Radiotherapy. Yeah. My mum, your dad. No, my, <laughs> my mum's my, in heaven. My, my mum. <laughs> I'm she sure she's listen, listening she, in heaven. She listens all the time. No, no, my dad. My mum listens. My um, my kids. They don't. 
Well, don't my know, kids don't listen. Yeah, don't, oh. maybe. No, yeah. but we, we do have a very loyal listenership. People call up all the time. And yep. in fact, don't you, occasionally I've been stopped at a lecture and someone says, I recognise your voice some, from somewhere. <gasps> nice. I know I, have a, I know I have a little following. Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, it's the season for uh, summer sports. There's cricket, which yeah, I'm not so into, no, but there is no. tennis, which I love me, watching. Me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah? Yeah, I'm going to have a musical theme. Me, 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 me. <laughs> And uh, G-Spot, you've got some information about how tennis is going to make me live longer or watching it? Absolutely, Uh yeah. It's actually participating in tennis, Dr Malpractice, yeah. Yeah. Um, So there was this uh, large study in uh, Scandinavia, about 30,000 people tracked over 25 years, looking at the effect of different sports on people's life expectancy. And what came up number one was tennis. Really? Absolutely. So, you know, I think with the Australian Open coming up in January, people should get their tennis gear out and it should make them live longer. So what did they actually do? Because I know that the the epidemiological studies, that is Mm. like large population studies of um, uh, something that the Scandinavians do really well. They really do. And methodologically, they're they're quite tough. Do you have any details about what they compared and how they did and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, they controlled for a lot of factors like education, socioeconomic status, etc. because we know that they have big impacts on life expectancy. So really, they were able to tease out the effects of different sports and really those um, sports that were more social, like tennis, badminton, soccer, were the ones that came up trumps and ones like sort of gym... Uh, more individual sports uh, still increase life expectancy, but by not as many years. So it's not just the physicality of the sport, yes, it's ex- the social aspect. Exactly. So combined, they have a very positive effect on life expectancy. Did they give a, like a, a value? Like It a- was actually nine years for tennis. Get out of here. I kid you not. Nine so, years. And what about, because I do the, the worst one, which is Jim. What, uh, <laughs> does that detract from my life or does it add a few? Or? <laughs> that was only sort of about one to two <laughs> years, Rob. So sorry you'll only be with us for, you know, a couple more years. If you took up tennis, though... You'd be you with reckon? us a lot longer. Yeah. What about golf? Did they look at golf? Golf was not on the list, EpiPen, but um, they think that that would be another more socially driven sport and likely to likely to have positive effects too. See, this segues really nicely with one of our guests, uh, Professor Felicity Baker, because uh, who we're talking about music and music therapy, but so much of what happens uh, in terms of health promotion, it's not just the physical; it's that social aspect of of engaging with other human beings and other human beings worrying about you or looking after you or thinking about you and, you know, and, and getting out and doing stuff. And it's so easy when you get older and, um, and not as fully functional as you used to be to, 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 to let those things slip. And that's true because you've touched on loneliness and I think there was a, a mention of a, an, a loneliness inquiry yeah. and how we can help people that really do put their hands up because they've had no social contact for days, weeks. Yeah. I wonder what, yeah, this, uh, I've struggled with this because I'm, you know, I've moved from being somebody who came from, you know, very doctor, very medical, very biologically oriented view of the world and, you know, everything is caused by biology to doing psychiatry and thinking, oh yeah, psychiatry and psychology is, you know, that that's the root cause of, of all the world's ills. To, to thinking now more about a social perspective and it, and um, I've been reading some great books about this but I, I shan't bore you about this sort of stuff. Hey, um, uh, any news from you spleen-wise, EpiPen? What's news um, in the world of spleens well, and blood cells? Uh, 
Do you, can I share a story with you? Um, this is really off the top of my head because I had a man I was talking to during the week yeah. and he's 65 yeah. and as a 23-year-old he was left dead on the side of the road um, when he was hit by a truck my goodness. and uh, it, people found him the next day. He was 23 and he had a lot of rehab and mm. he got over a paralysis and broken bones and all sorts of things. And uh, and then he's in the, his 60s he got colon cancer mm. and now he's 65 and it's all spread through his body and mm-hmm. he's got um, liver cancer mm. or secondaries in his liver. And he had some chemo and he said, enough. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. And when he had his chemo, all his paralysis came back and mm. he said, I've bought a caravan and I've bought a camera mm. and I'm off mm. and I'm, mm. I'm well. Mm. I got my faculties mm. and I had tears rolling down my cheeks talking mm. to him because mm. he just, he's made this really courageous decision and he doesn't want people to interfere with his life and yep. while he can still ha- do stuff and he's off. And I can just envisage him off in his camper van with his camera and just enjoying <laughs> these last few months, year, what he has left. Mm. Absolutely. That focus on quality of life uh, rather than quantity, I think, is so important. Yeah, I wish we could... Can we follow his journey at all? Well, I, I think he, he's going to come and show me some photos. I don't normally have much contact with patients, but he, I said, I'm, I'm so moved by your story. I told him I was teary, he could tell. and <laughs> I, can, I can hear it just now. Yeah. yeah. And I said, let's have a coffee and look at your pictures. And I th- thought about a blog or something, yeah. you know, just... And a spleen story because he doesn't have his spleen. I forgot that bit when his pancreas came out and uh, liver he's cancer. Spleenless. And he's spleenless. So mm. that's how he came under my guidance. I've just finished reading a book by Lee Sales called An Ordinary Day about blind sides and about tragedy that affects people. And mm. um, God, it's the best book I've read in such a long really? time. It is. I'm going to write my second fan letter ever. And it's going to be to her because it is... She Can I ask who your first was to, Rob, just by yeah, the way? It was, to, uh, it was to Margaret Throsby who who, crea- who uh, does a music program on uh, yeah. ABC about 25 years ago. Anyway, so she, she has written this book, which is just extraordinary, absolutely, about, about these really tough, tragic things that happen in people's lives and the sort of things where you get value, you know, where it's, it's the relationships. Three, triple, ah. Oh. You are indeed listening to 3 Triple R. We finally managed to squeeze the entire Chips program into uh, the Triple R studio. Let's just introduce them. First up, we have Dr. Mick Creedy. Mick, you, hello. Are you exhausted from that ride you had oh, this morning? Oh, long from way. Yeah, yeah. Exhausted. Still getting over it. <laughs> Glad to sit down. And we have Harry, who's Harry. the manager. Yep. How you going, mate? Good. Nice to see you. And Michael, who's uh, in the Chips program as well. Hello. Okay, gentlemen, somebody tell me what the CHIPS program is, how it started, what your mission statement is. Yeah. Uh, CHIPS, it stands for Chronic Illness Peer Support, and it's a program for, for young people from the age of 12 to 25 who live with varying health conditions and chronic illnesses. And basically what we try to do um, is create opportunities for young people uh, to hang out, spend time with each other, support each other, um, hopefully build some relationships and friendships, um, and, you know, share what it's like to live with a chronic illness. Yeah, and Harry, how did you get involved? Like, tell us your background. Um, I was working at the hospital as an AHA in the physiotherapy department. What's an AHA? Allied Health Assistant. All oh, right. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually got involved in CHIPS through a music program. So I'm a musician in my part-time. Um, and I started running a music program with Megan Hunt, who uh, also knows... 
the music therapist out there. That is fantastic. <laughs> um, and then I, I left the hospital for a bit, got into youth work, and then I came back uh, when, a, when a position came up. So, right, yeah. And so yeah. now you're managing the... Uh, the now I'm program. managing the program, yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and it had... A, look, we'll go into the details of the program, but how do kids actually get in to the program? Um, so I think yeah. I'll tell you how yeah. that works. <laughs> Thank um, you, Michael. Uh, so Harry was my allied health assistant in the hospital and I was in hospital yeah and he joined the joined chips and then I got a referral from one of the nurses to join chips and he got me into chips that way and now I've been there for three years and what did Harry come up and try and uh, convince you or did you say no I want to be in this thing I was Megan so Harry's predecessor oh right okay yeah and so basically yeah we, we receive a referral from usually from inside the hospital, but oh, sometimes so it's got a, from it's the community as well. Oh, so it's uh, so um, uh, adolescents can't just put their hand up. That has to come through a referrer. Correct. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and then basically, as you mentioned, we'll go and hassle that young person and try to <laughs> try and convince them, dragoon <laughs> yeah. them into it, yeah. <laughs> that the program uh, is something that they get a lot out of and that right. they would enjoy. So, Michael, what does Chips do for you? Chips basically gives me a, a platform to talk to other young people and have um, uh, be able to go on camps, go to rec days, and enjoy myself. And I also do this program, music programs, and we've got this thing called what is it? Ch- Choosical, a Ch- Chips musical that we've <laughs> set up at the moment. It's really good. Choosical. <laughs> so yeah, it just gives me an outlet. Um, Mick, yeah, you go yeah so I'm a paediatrician from yep. the Department of Adolescence, Adolescent Health at the Children's Hospital, yeah. and our department runs the CHIPS program. And what do you do there as a doctor? I mean, what's um, your I'm a paediatrician on the Adolescent Medicine Ward, so lots of children with chronic illnesses, chronic pain, mm. eating disorders, overdoses, mm. Mm. but mm. CHIPS is one of our programs, and I've seen, I think Michael has understates the benefit I've seen the kids get from the program. I've had lots of my patients go through the program, and they start off with an eight-week two-hour-a-week session where they get to... It'd be kids with any... Young people with any chronic illness, osteogenesis, diabetes, cystic fibrosis. So it's not about the illness, it's about having a chronic illness. So they mm-hmm. get to whinge about, aren't the doctors horrible? Isn't it horrible to be in pain all the time? Isn't it horrible I bought my dress for the formal and couldn't go because yeah. I was sick? So there's these common themes they talk about. And those groups are facilitated by people who've been... Or young people who've been through the program. Then they graduate on to become leaders. Then they graduate on to... Organisers and fundraisers, and, uh, and I think Michael. Then they have, then they have it graduate to become uh, advocates on ra- on Triple R <laughs> for the illness, and it's one of the skills uh, they don't realise yeah. they're getting at the time. Uh, but the, uh. the, the the groups that get the most support are the groups that can advocate best for themselves, and I uh. think Chips does all of that. It connects people. Um, a lot of the kids have never been to socials. A lot of the, lot of the young people have never been to a school camp because they've got epilepsy yeah, or osteogenesis. Yeah, yeah. So we provide a camp um, with two or three nurses and a doctor in attendance so they can go twice a year. So it's, it's giving them opportunities, like Harry said, to do a lot, a lot of things that they would otherwise miss out on. Whereabouts are your camps? Um, Michael, which ones? Uh, I don't know where we went last <laughs> <laughs> So we try and keep the camps within two hours of the hospital. Sure, sure. That's the rule. Um, in January, we're heading up to Beaufort. Cape Hill Creek, um, which is just up past Ballarat, isn't it? Up that way. I, yeah. th- I tell you what, the synchronicity is just going on and on because um, I just said to, to Harry that his predecessor, 25 years ago, came from Beaufort. <laughs> oh, and wow. now you're going back there yeah. for a ship's camp. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful and part of the world, Beaufort. Yeah. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. yeah. 
Um, we get to glamp, which is quite nice. The young people have to stay in the in the normal area, and the staff get to go <laughs> up on the hill in the glamping tents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, in the Dandenongs recently. Yeah, we're in the Dandenongs in oh, October. So you guys get the luxury. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing about Chips Camp is that we don't take our any technology with us, so we've got no phones. Um, we've got no ability to contact the outside world, We're, and it's amazing because we just get to spend time with each other. And how long? How long is it for, Michael? The for three days. Oh, three days without a screen. How'd yeah. you cope? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I go to bed at night and I'm like, where's my phone? I want my phone. <laughs> you just go through withdrawals. Yeah, I can imagine any yeah. adolescent without a phone for mm. three days. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, they get a bit upset when they can't keep their Snapchat streaks going. On. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what it's called, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I think my son outsourced his Snapchat streaks to a mate when he went up to school camp because it's the same thing, no phones. I think it's, it's just fantastic. What sort of changes do you notice, um, Mick, in the kids that go through the programs? Uh, look, um, so look, there's obviously the confidence but, um, and social connection and a lot of kids, I think, have go in mildly depressed, moderately depressed mm. and come out connected. So that's that's right. I think in terms of... From my medical perspective, the, the disease, how they manage their illness a lot better. They actually take ownership of their illness. I think I see that through yeah. the kids that have been through the program and can self-manage and turn up to appointments. Not just turning up to appointments, but actually take a bit more ownership of their illness and manage themselves a lot better. Uh, uh, what do you reckon is unique um, about this period of life with a chronic illness, so, you know, in adolescence yeah. compared to, you know, you're in your 30s or 40s. Yeah. Are what are the unique aspects yeah, of that? Yeah, look, I think if you talk about ad- adolescence in general, it's that transition from being a child to an adult and uh, you have a lot of resp- responsibilities as an adult, driving a car, uh, managing contraception, managing relationships, but also managing your own illness. And I think it's that transition from being dependent on your parents to being managing yourself and that doesn't happen overnight. It's not something you get you go and do a course for and do. It's, it, it happens gradually. And, you know, I've got a 19-year-old son. He'd be hopeless walking around the Royal Melbourne himself if he missed his appointment. So yeah. I think it is a, a skill uh, yeah. we don't think about, but self-management's a big skill, and I think that's one of the yeah. um, big things that comes out of this group. Um, parents, um, going away without your parents when you're a bit younger and being very reliant on them through your um, health a journey so um with my health journey i didn't really have my my parents were there they really supported me but i once i turned 18 i took over my health and i'm 21 now so i can't really remember much because i got sick again when i was 18 so i've managed my health as when um by myself from 18 to, to now can, can you tell me a bit about your health I- issues um, so i've got a uh, hydrocephalus I've also got, which is a water in the brain. Thank you. So it's like a, a condition where water can't escape the surplus, sur- the brain and can't go down the spinal cord. So I've got these things called shunts that drain fluid from my brain to my abdomen. And i also got um, a brain tumour. And with my brain tumour, I've got an ABI, so which is an acquired brain what's, injury. What's an ABI? Acquired brain injury. Mm-hmm. So... I've got, I don't know how I'm doing at the moment, but I've got a speech impairment. You're doing bloody brilliantly. <laughs> doing great. Doing <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, I've got uh, processing problems. Mm. So it takes me a while to process different like, information. Mm. Some might be able to process it really easily. It takes me a while to do it, but uh, when I get it, it, it sticks to me for a long time. Uh, Michael, what, what did you personally 
get out of the, the CHIPS program? I mean, everybody gets something different, but what, what were the best things for you, do you reckon? So when I... Um, I'm going to put a downer on everything at the yeah, moment. Yeah. Um, so when I joined the CHIPS program, I was quite depressed mm, and mm. not happy mm, with life. Mm. And mm. I joined the CHIPS program and I really was... I don't know if Harry knows this, I was quite suicidal mm. at that point. And one of the doctors at the CHIPS program... He took me aside one of, at the end, end of one of the camps and he got me some help. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. Um, it was really effective. I got into Chips Tunes, which is the music program. Chips Tunes. And that helped me quite a lot. And I ended up doing, joining the Chusical. Um, and <laughs> we, wrote a mu- we, wrote a, we wrote a musical and wrote songs in the, about what it's like to have a, a chronic illness. And it was really good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and ha- that's... And I see a psychologist now. It's really helped me. And I've also um, gotten st- stuff out of... Um, been able to pursue stuff that I ha- wasn't able to do beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, like my career in, he- career in health. And I also volunteer with the ambulance service, St John Ambulance. And um, I'm loving life at the moment. Oh, That's just fantastic. Fantastic. Now, uh, how do we, how do people find out more about the Chips programs? I'm just imagining that there, uh, there are people listening or there are healthcare providers listening, parents listening, kids listening who are thinking, oh, I don't know, it sounds interesting, but how, how would they find out more about it? Get a website or something? Or? Yeah, so um, we've got a website. It's the rch.org.au forward slash chips mm-hmm. um, and you can find all of our contact information on there. We have a Facebook page forward slash rch chips. Um, hang on, hang on, forward slash rch chips, right? Yep. yep. And we've got, I mean, you can always call the office. We're always happy to have a chat. Um, if you want more information, that's 9345 6166. <laughs> Is that which receives money from public donations. So um, the, the foundation's been fantastic, but like um, they're expecting us to contribute more and more to our program, and that, that's where the bike rides come in. I've raised thirty thousand or so over the last two years with the bike rides, and we're changing our model next year. We get to a mass participation ride. How far have you have you ridden? So last year I rode from Perth to Sydney, four thousand k's. <laughs> and, and <laughs> <laughs> in 19 days, do the maths. And this year I rode, I went off road. I went from Geraldton to Uluru. And how uh, far two, was that? 2,000 k's. So 1,000 k's on dirt, 1,100 k's on dirt. So, what? 11,000 11, k's on dirt? 1,100 k's on dirt. Yeah. So you've ridden uh, 6,000 6, k's in total. So that's $5 per k. Oh, yes. mate, you deserve much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so stay tuned. We'll so, um, so just the highlights of that is that the CHIPS program, which is... Look, I know the CHIPS program yep. pretty well. Um, yep. it's, it's a, it is a brilliant program. It's not funded directly through hospital funds, but Correct. through the RCH Foundation. Correct. You guys do um, charity... Uh, get money through yep. um, philanthropy, which is yep. just bloody fantastic. Yep. And next year, you're going to be doing a, a velodrome? Yes, so yeah. next year, before I go back, we've got a chips auxiliary now, the chipsillery, we call it. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so the concept next year is we've got access to a velodrome in Preston. We'll do a 24, uh, 12-hour bike challenge where people <coughs> can register as an individual or a team 
And it's a bit like the MS Swimathon or the Box Fan Walk. You have to raise a certain amount of money yeah. to participate. The Velodrome's been fantastic. Uh, and my, I want to sit back and let the chippers do all the running and get those skills from organising it. I'll do some but of the logistics. That'd be Ben. Uh, just a quick question. So what age groups are you covering? So Michael's 21. So, so from what age and how many kids? What are we talking about here? Uh, so we receive referrals for young people from the age of t 12 to 25. So um, if you're 12, you have to already be in high school. Um, so usually from 13. Most of our referrals come from between 13 and 16 year olds. Um, and then they kind of kick themselves out at about 24. There's a tradition to bow out at the, gen at the January camp. So we'll be losing a couple of our older chippers in January, which is always a bit of a sad thing. Um, and on the books at the moment, we've got about 130 young people Whoa. in the program. Yeah, okay. so, so, so over the 20 years, about 2,000, I think, yeah. have been a, through And the no other hospital um, does a program like this? So Monash children or adolescents will come to you? Correct, yes. We have young people coming from Tasmania, from southern New South Wales. Um, but there is uh, two... There's a new chips just started at... Um, is it Westmead up in Sydney? Mm -hmm. And Randwick have had a program for about mm -hmm. five years. So we ask spreading out slowly fantastic stuff so that's all the contact information for chips you might have heard just before i reckon chuck chips c-h-i-p-s r-c-h into your google and you'll get some info if, look if this has brought up some difficult uh, emotional issues don't forget there's always lifeline you can contact one three one 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 four three triple Good morning, um, Triple R listeners. So we are so lucky to have Felicity Baker with us. And I'm going to start off by asking Felicity, wow, how did you get into this music therapy thing and what's your background and your passion? And there's just a couple of things to start you off. Sure. Thank you, firstly, for having me on the show. Pleasure. Um, I think I, I discovered music therapy when I was 15, when I was in high school. I was trying to choose my subjects like every young 15-year-old was doing at the time and I uh, was, you know, pretty good at music. It wasn't perhaps my best subject, but I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it. But I was also very good at the sciences and I have parents who are both health professionals and was trying to find some way that I could uh, marry those two together. And just by chance came across music therapy from our careers counsellor and I've never looked back. What, do you play an instrument or do you sing? Uh, uh, my piano is my main instrument, but I do sing a bit, yes. Singer-songwriter. Did, did, did we tell you that we're going to get you to sing on the show this morning? No, uh, that's I, fantastic. I suggested a Christmas carol. <laughs> Look at the fear. Oh, my God. No, I'm not afraid at all. <laughs> oh, really? I even better. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, so I, um, so I went to the University of Melbourne where I uh, did my music therapy training back in the late 80s and graduated as a music therapist, practised in the area of brain injury for uh, almost 10 years before uh, moving into academic life and then now a researcher in music therapy. Huh? So what would you do for somebody with an acquired brain injury, an ABI? Yeah, well, it's interesting just, just having listened to Michael speaking on the program from CHIPS because he's exactly the kind of uh, person that I would have been working with back when I was a clinician. But now as a researcher, I've been doing a lot of work using songwriting because he talked about songwriting as one of the things he's been doing at CHIPS. And so I was, I'm just wrapping up a project at the moment where a, um, young adults uh, like Michael uh, write songs about um, their journey through receiving an acquired brain injury and the and the purpose behind it is to really help them to reconstruct 
their sense of self after injury. So being someone, first of all, who is just going about his or her daily life and then uh, overnight, um, literally, uh, a different kind of person and that, that way of using the songs to, to build the bridge between the past self, the present self and the future self. I mean, the amount of subjectivity of what goes into a personal selection for music, how do you take account for that? Do you have like a vast sort of CD library or MP3 library in your head that you think about when you're playing? I mean, how do you know what somebody likes? Or what's you, useful? Sorry. That, that's fine. Um, we have a bit of a, a system, I guess, is that we try to work out what music people were listening to when they're in their late teens, early 20s. Oh. And that's um, irrespective of whether we're working with a 25-year-old or a 95-year-old. So we call this period in our life the reminiscence bump, where we build our long-term memories, um, and music is often a very important part of that. So we often reminisce about our our teen and early 20s years, always want to go back there, uh, and music is connected to that because that's also the point in our time when we're developing our mm. identity and our sense of self. I was listening to a podcast recently about that. It might have even been you talking about it, about that reminiscent bump. And yeah, how, that was me. Was it? Was, <laughs> yeah, that was... No, it was interesting because my wife said, you've got to listen to this, it's fantastic, and I had to listen. Um, and it's so true. I thought, mm. gee, all the songs I really like are from my adolescent period. Um and I guess that's why there's all these uh, with the bands that keep coming back for the baby movements like us because that's our favourite time, all yeah. the time that we reminisce about. That's right, I'm an 80s girl. I, I look, oh, so do you like, uh, hang on, the Eurythmics, yes. uh, that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, it's, just, it's just struck a chord with me because we had designed a dinner party game where you had to come with a song. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I was at that dinner party, wasn't No, it? no, you weren't. Bad oh. luck. It, you weren't free. You were always busy. Oh, okay. Anyway, so you had to bring a song and you, we put it, you, it was in a hat what the song was and we pulled them out and then you had to guess who that person was that chose that song oh. and then they had to describe why that song meant so much to them. Hang on. It sounds like one of my music therapy activities. So tell us about that. Uh, in terms of... An activity? An activity. Well, we often... When we're working with people, we often want them to share a sense of self and sometimes people find it difficult to get started um, and to open up and to feel relaxed that they can talk about themselves. So music can be that kind of bridge. It can really evoke our emotions and, uh, I mean, that's why we have music at dinner parties in the first place because it kind of breaks down that tension in the air, creates a nice atmosphere and people are often more able to talk and if that music that you're playing is your preferred music then that has an even more powerful impact on how you feel connected to the music and then able to share the meaning of that with other people. Is there a way to measure it? What, how? Is blood pressure? I mean have you done a research project around um, keeping a diary of moods and if they get engaged in a music program, it's it, that's how your outcome measure is, mm. is there? I think our outcome measures depend on what the goal is. Uh, so sometimes mm. our goal could be around um, emotional well-being, but sometimes we have more physiological goals, physical goals, communication goals. I mean, Michael before talked about how he has a bit of a speech a bit of a speech challenge oh. and uh, we often will I, I often work quite closely with speech therapists developing uh, different like writing songs but also choosing songs that will target certain speech sounds to help them improve their articulation because we know that when we sing we're using um, a different 
uh, set of neural networks in our brain that um, where music and language will often timeshare parts of our brain. So we use that as a kind of another route to, to helping them um, with their speech. Uh, Felicity, do you think um, all types, like uh, different psychological disorders, could potentially benefit from, from music mm. therapy? Like, mm. say, like a trauma, PTSD. Mm. Is there any evidence around that? Uh, there's quite a bit of evidence. Um, music therapists, we work across a spectrum of different populations, right through from neonates through to palliative care. Uh, and so we, mental health is a particularly well-established field in music therapy um, with depression, with not so much with PTSD, or they call it PTS now, don't they? They've changed it now. Um, they also work with... Um, with anxiety, I imagine there'd be a, a, a utility for it. it was, yes. I, I remember, and this is a, this is like, because um, I'm myself a hack music mm-hmm. therapist, but... Um, <laughs> You know, what is it? Packabell's Canon. It's got a particular rhythm which is very relaxing. And I remember I used to listen to it when I got particularly stressed and I just, mm. it would just, it would slow my breathing. I could mm. almost literally feel my blood pressure go down and any kind of neurotic worries would gently, it's kind of like yoga for my, for my brain, gently melt away. Well, I think everybody already knows what music does something yeah, to them and yeah. whether you need it, the music to calm you down or whether you want to be energised by it, you'll have different selections. yeah. yeah. So, you know, when I need to pump myself up, I'll choose a piece of music that I feel will be appropriate at that particular moment and I will intentionally play it yeah. to give me that effect. Now, you're doing a lot of work uh, with people with uh, acquired brain injury and uh, dementia. That's right. Tell us about your work and what sort of findings um, have come up. Sure. Well, I um, maybe I'll talk about the brain injury first because I'm sort sure, of wrapping sure. up that project at the moment. Sure, sure. So um, I talked before about um, working with songs to help people bridge this past self, present self and future self. Yeah. And it was interesting, actually, when we did our pilot study, we were looking at the self-concept or, or what we might know as identity um, as our main outcome measure. And we had a special uh, measure to test that. But we also um, collected data on anxiety and depression, satisfaction with life, sense of flourishing, um, a whole sort of gamut of, um, of different measures because we really wanted to also look about uh, look towards um, trying to identify what the mechanisms are that is going on when people write songs, like what's actually happening to them that's making this transformational shift, <laughs> right? Um, so we did all that. We collected all these other sets of data too and it was interesting for us that whilst the self-concept or their identity shifted in a positive direction, the actual biggest impact was in their levels of depression. Mm. And this was fascinating because this wasn't actually our our primary intention, mm-hmm. but it, it, it did shift to a greater degree than their actual identity. And sort of trying to interpret what that all means, mm. um, I sort of feel like they need... that. Changing a shift in identity is 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 kind of a long process, whereas changing a shift in your mood Mm. and your level of depression might be Mm. a shorter process. Mm. So there might be... It might be that I go down the road in a 12-month's time, visit some of these people and find Mm. that there might be an identity Mm. shift. And, for example, one of the... um, one of the young men that I worked with, he uh, regularly keeps in contact mm-hmm. and he still talks about how he rides a motorbike and um, he goes to work on his motorbike and he plays his own songs to himself as he's riding his bike to work mm-hmm. uh, as a way of kind of pumping him up for the day. This is my story. This is my song. 
Yeah. I remember, I think it was Tom Petty, maybe, um, who was being interviewed about the songwriting process and he said he didn't like to talk about it because it was such an ephemeral thing mm. that to try and talk about it, he, he was sort of worried that he'd lose the mojo because once you dissect something, <laughs> it, it can just go away, you know. And so I imagine trying to pass um, yes. what it is that, that goes into your activity is such a difficult thing, but how do you even come at that? Oh, you know... I also one of the research studies I did was also about what the long-term impact was um, and and how people related to their own songs <laughs> further down the track yeah. and it's actually interesting because for some people <clears throat> these songs have long-term value that they will yeah. still keep playing them and that will take them back to that yeah. situation when they were writing it and will also be a reminder of actually how far they have come in yeah. their journey but for others it's too painful they can't yeah. revisit it because it takes them back to that pain. And it was like, okay, that's something that I've done now. I'm going to put it away and it's there. It's something I did, but yeah. I don't have any longer-term um, uh, attachment to that song. Yeah, it's kind mm. of getting it out of your head and now I'm, I'm going to move on type of thing. Exactly. Wow. Mm. Um, you are listening to Radiotherapy uh, on Triple R. It is uh, 10.44 and 40 seconds uh, with the Dr. Mal practice Nurse EpiPen, I'm doing this very slowly because in case I forget, Nurse EpiPen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, um, Dr. Cheese, but oh, that name just came up this morning. It's very funny. And um, Professor Felicity Baker from uh, uh, the Music Therapy and Creative Arts uh, Unit at uh, Melbourne Uni. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. One day I'm going to collect all the discussions we have during uh, the sponsorship announcements that we do off air and I'll put them together as a compilation. <laughs> kind of like a bloopers tape or something. Yeah, bloopers. I was thinking of what you'd call it. Yeah. Well, we don't bloop. Yeah. We don't, but well, we slag off at each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are talking with uh, Professor Felicity Baker about music therapy. Hey, what about dance therapy? Is that part of your gamut? It's not part of mine, but we do have a dance music therapist who has started with us in our team and and they do do work. Because I imagine they'd be interrelated, dance and music type of thing. Absolutely. I mean, you need music to dance. Oh, or do you? That's a good silent question. Silent discos? Have you seen those silent discos that go down Chapel Street with people with... <laughs> a friend of mine. Well, okay, my wife did it. <laughs> I didn't want to out her. But um, they, they, um, they all had uh, uh, headphones on and they're like listening to Queen and really rocky music and they just dance down Chapel Street and all these people like walking out. I've definitely seen that, Mal. Have you, yes. Isn't that fantastic? And they're all like in, like get up, they're done up in Lycra and all these great clothes. That's, I didn't know what they were at first and thought it was part of a flash mob and thought yeah. I should join in, but... Then realised what it was, and I thought it was terrific. I've got a really good example of, of um, a, a project that I've been involved in with Flash Mobs. Would you like me to yeah, tell yeah, you about yeah, it? Yeah, for it. So I was working with um, with a group of people, and I should actually um, uh, tribute my dear dear friend Adam Thompson from um, Chocolate Starfish. Do you remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, who I who I worked with uh, in this project, and. And uh, we went down country Victoria and worked with a big group of young people uh, writing songs about um, their uh, experiences uh, of being young people who were sort of a bit, um, a bit they were at risk of, of school dropout and, yep. and things like that. And we, we created this music video and then we, um, we took our speakers and uh, backing tracks and flash mobbed the town, taking their song to the cafe, we took their song to the, the uh, residential aged care home, went to the police station 
and we basically flash mobbed and they danced. They had learnt this choreographed dance to their own song. And the idea behind it was really to to uh, break down the barriers between these young people and their community because these people were likely to be staying in these country towns. So building uh, resilient, strong relationships with community members was was a, a sort of a key part. And the idea about that was to bring the song to them yeah. to show to show the, the community what these people could do, mm-hmm. these young people, but also for these young people to see how they were being received mm-hmm. by their uh, community uh, members. And I remember going to the... Um, when we flash mobbed the police station, it was very, it was very cool. Um, so we took the two, the two policemen um, out the front, and they were dancing together with these young people in the street, in front of cars passing by and everything. And at the very end of it, um, there was this young guy who, um, who'd really uh, had difficulties with his family's involvement with the police, mm-hmm. and so police for them were like. A, um, there was a barrier there mm, and, mm. And, and there was fear and mm. police mean, meant, you know, bad news. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that, they looked at each other and this, this guy had to, this young guy had to high-five both the policemen before we were able to leave. It was like a complete transformation in the relationship mm. between mm. Uh, these young people. So it's the, it's the wonderful things about music that can bring communities together yeah. in this way. Yeah. So if you're a young person listening to this program, not even a young person, uh, uh, any, any aged person, and was thinking, gosh, this has really piqued my interest, what exactly would be the pre- or are the prerequisites for doing a music therapy course? Uh, yeah, sure. At, um, at the University of Melbourne, and there's only two universities in Australia that teach music therapy, Melbourne and also um, Western Sydney University. And... Um, you you can ha- you can come with either a, like a health degree. Um, we have a lot of social workers and uh, people with psychology degrees coming in, or we have people who have a bachelor of music coming mm. into our degree. But as but as long as the music skills are at a certain standard, then um, there's a possibility of coming in. It's an extremely competitive program now. When I went in, it was. It was quite small and unique. And now we have we had about eighty people apply for our program last year, and we only took half of them. Mm-hmm. So it's quite competitive, and people are doing a lot of preparation because I think it's people are just seeing the real benefits, and it's it's piquing people's interest to to do this kind of work. I remember reading a, there's a I'm not sure if you've read this book. Um, it's by a psychiatrist called Michael Storr, who's an English psychiatrist who's written about music, and I think it's called Music in the Mind or something like that. And uh, he he wrote this. It was it was a very um, sort of narrative type of book about mm-hmm. the, the the intense impact that, that music has, and uh, I think it, it appealed to me because it, it's just it, this, and I was getting to this before. It's this subjective thing about uh, about the emotions that it evokes. You know, you can stand in front of a painting and get a powerful sense of emotion. Like I don't know, I'm prattling on, and people tell me I'm prattling. But you ever stood in front of a Rothko painting? You know that Rothko, which is like reds and blacks. Oh, it's an abstract painting. Okay, mm-hmm. it's an abstract. Some people stand in front of that and cry, and some people stand in front of it and laugh. Like it's it's very powerful, yeah. <laughs> and some people stand in front of it and go, "No, nah, this does nothing for me." And I reckon it's the same with music. It's this projective test. Some pieces, like you know, if I listen to, I don't know, like um, some jazz. Puff the Magic Dragon for me. No way. <laughs> Absolutely. When I play that on the piano, I can't get to the third verse before I have to stop because I start crying. <laughs> I thought it's about. I thought Puff the Magic Dragon's about 
smoking. Uh, but it's got another story. No way. <laughs> What's the true story behind Puff the Magic Dragon? We oh, can he reveal it here with the blood. dragon. Yeah. He, he dies. Yes. Oh really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a story about grief. Mm, exactly. Yeah. But you know, it's a, it's really? not just about the story. It's it's what is in the music itself that some mm. it's obviously resonating in some way for me and it always makes me cry. But it's something about notes that evoke a particular emotion, like D minor makes you feel sad and stuff like that. I was like going to say, yeah. it's, it's often a harmonic progression, actually, rather than a specific uh, note. Yeah, yeah. Mm, so that something will happen there'll be, and there'll be a shift in the harmony and it just... I don't know, it gets you... Because I don't know if you know this, but music actually has the capacity to release our endorphins. So do you know when you get that sort of chill, the little goosebumps, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you get that kind of shudder? Yeah. You can get that from music and that's um, that's the endorphins rushing through your body uh, as a result of something that's stimulated you through the music. Oh, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. So given that we're close to Christmas, I mm. thought I'd just throw a little Christmas carol suggestion. You were mentioning it in the green room, how that evokes memories and um, feelings about a particular time of a year. or Yeah, you... so I talked before about the reminiscence bump and about oh. how music, um, you know, can has a so strong associations with periods in people's lives. And, of course, Christmas is hopefully um, a happy time for most people. Um, not always the case, of course, mm-hmm. but um, it usually brings with it quite strong, happy emotions about being around family. Um, and so Christmas carols can kind of do that. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know, that it's important to have Christmas carols because it's also, you know, part of our history as well, passed down from generation to generation. So we're connecting people across various generations. It's funny that you should say it's a happy time. It is a happy time. It should be, it's not always, but, but not always. No. But I was going to say with Dr G-Spot being a psychologist and me being a, a shrink that um, my uh, um, frame is often set to people who find this period very, very difficult. Yes, for sure. Because of the family get-together and the mm-hmm. family struggles and the tensions and the conflicts and you're kind of forced to get together and there is an expectation that you should be happy, and if you're not being happy, then there's something wrong, you know. Mm. So um, that's been my experience too, Mal. Absolutely, uh, I've been spending a lot of time with my patients, just preparing for Christmas being a, a particularly negative time. But I yeah. wonder if we could potentially use music, music from yeah. a happier time in their life to kind of uh, negate some of those uh, more negative connotations that they have. Yeah, there's probably a lot of ways that people could do it. It's it's about sitting down and thinking through what what music is right for what mood and for what particular context. Um, you'd probably want to steer away from things that then that, that might trigger ne- more negative emotions. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So you know how sometimes somebody hands you their phone and, and you're just kind of compelled to, you know, they show you their photos, but then you go and go into their playlist and you see what they like listening to. I do, reckon that's do you? that's a very invasive. I, I think. would never <laughs> do that. Oh, I would never do Good. that. Me neither. <laughs> but not. I reckon. I reckon it's it's kind of like a bit of a it's a bit of a peering into their soul. I reckon. What do you think, Felicity? Yes, I'm just having a bit of a think about my own playlists uh, and reflecting on what's in them and more importantly when I choose to listen to which tracks. And, you know, I have a track for when I go 
running or walking. I have a track for when I want to have a cry. Oh. I have tracks for when I um, want to energise myself because I'm about to do something that I really don't want to do, like, I don't know, clean the house or something. Yeah. Uh, I have... I have um, what I call my power songs. They're the songs that when I'm going into a situation where I might feel a bit vulnerable, mm-hmm. that I need some sort of psyching up in a mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. I Will Survive mm-hmm. is my song. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. That's uh, a brilliant song. Yeah, it's so appropriate. Oh, you've now put that meme in my head. I can't get out of my head now. Yeah. I Will Survive, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, it depends. People could have multiple playlists depending on the context. Um, you know, and what's right at the time. Yeah. And sometimes a song that works today doesn't have the same impact as it does tomorrow. It's because of whatever happened before or whatever's coming afterwards. It's all part of how we respond to, mm. to music. It's so contextual. It is. Hey, listen, I just the time has run away from us. Oh, sorry, I was going to get back to asking you about your research and it was about the impact, because <laughs> this is your professor, we should ask you, um, the impact of, of music therapy on people with Alzheimer's. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So uh, I think for, for people with dementia, this is one of the most well-researched areas of music therapy, although we still don't really have any huge, big studies with large numbers of participants. And I've just been really fortunate to, last year to have secured a million dollars to do that. Wow. A million bucks! Uh, yes. Um, so I've got... So the National Health and Medical Research Council has funded a, a study which will involve 40 aged care facilities, wow. 500 participants. Wow. And one of the important things that we're doing in this project is not just to look at um, the impact on their, on their um, depression, that's our main outcome measure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and their behaviour but we're also um, doing a health economics analysis to look at the impact of you know how much music therapy costs and how much can we therefore save if we're able to manage their behaviours. They might have less falls, they might have less visits to the psychologist, yeah, yeah. whatever. Um, so we're looking at uh, less medication, you know, because many of the medications for people with dementia are contraindicated. It, um, so we're looking at can we reduce their levels of medication. Awesome. Well, so you've got to come back and tell us what the findings are. Because sure. um, <laughs> well, that, that, you run out of time. Five years. Three years. Three years. Christmas, three, three. years. <laughs> you have been listening to Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Malpractice, Nurse EpiPen, Dr. G-Spot and uh, Professor Felicity Baker from Melbourne University. We've got to wrap up now because the scientists from my side are going to go in the studio right next to us. We'll catch up with you next Sunday at 10 o'clock. Cheers. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.